everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another edition of the Great War Supporter Podcast. As you might be able to hear uh, with a slightly different recording setup, because still I'm in at home in Berlin and Jesse is at home in Vienna. And we finally figured out how to do remote recording. Um, this is not just true for uh, the Great War Supporter podcast now, but as you have seen in the last Great War episode that we uploaded uh, a few days ago, we also figured out how we can film Jesse in the special COVID-19 shutdown studio, aka his living room, um, so we can continue to bring you Great War episodes even while Jesse is not physically able to travel no, he's physically able, but he's not allowed to travel to um, from Vienna to Berlin. Not how, yet, anyway. We'll see what the what the future brings. How much do you miss Berlin, Jesse? Well, I miss you guys more than I oh. miss Berlin. Oh. Now, especially since the weather uh, has gone considerably better since uh, since you left. Ironically, I content myself with. Uh, the Vienna flag towers rather than the Berlin one. Yeah, very good. Uh, yeah, um, for those of you who are interested in it, um, you might have seen that uh, while we were also busy on the Great War and figuring out how we can continue producing the Great War, even though we have you know these special circumstances right now, uh, we are also hard at work releasing uh, 16 Days in Berlin, our documentary series about the Battle of Berlin. We're releasing that 75 years later after the battle, day by day. Um, thanks for everybody of our Patreon supporters who also uh, backed the project on Indiegogo when uh, we had the crowdfunding campaign. And yeah, just in case you haven't heard, uh, haven't read the emails that we were sending out, um, the documentary is out now. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that as well. But back to 1920. We released an episode about um, the San Remo Conference. What is the San, San Remo Conference, Jesse? Well, it's more exciting than it sounds. Let's put it that way. I, I always as, get a little... As often is the case in history. <laughs> yeah. I always get a little chill when I think, oh yeah, this conference happened. It's real important. We'll do an episode about that. But the word conference just oozes boredom. Um, but actually, it's kind of the an important stepping stone in that whole process of recreating or creating a new political order in the Middle East out of the old Ottoman Empire. In this case, we focus down on the Arabic-speaking provinces in the Middle East, and I guess we gave most attention to Syria. And what ends up happening through all the wrangling about this area throughout the war years and at the peace conference and so on, there's a this San Remo conference in April 1920, where basically they decide who's getting the mandates for where. And this will come as no shock to some. The French and British uh, get the mandates for the region. Um, but the conference also leaves quite a few questions undone. And all this is part of that genesis of uh, some of the difficulties that the Middle East has faced since that time. Yeah, um, I think that was uh, very obvious. 
Um, what I found interesting about this is um, that in the, the end product basically is colonialism um, without the ex without any added extra steps, which is you know somewhat weird since the mandate system and also the establishment of the League of Nations was you know at least supposedly um, you know a step in the direction of the new world order without you know the empires uh, and whatnot and you know especially since these mandates you know replace an old empire one of the empires that lost the war the ottoman empire but in a way um, you know it these mandates just as i said replace one imperial power with 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 another and when you follow the um, the example of the uh, of the uh, the petitions that the uh, which was a tool in the Ottoman Empire for the civilian population to get in touch with the Sultan, uh, and how the in the mandates these ma uh, these um, you know voices of the people were basically ignored. Um, it's quite ironic that you know it seems to be step step backward in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, it's at least a step sideways, I think might be the most positive spin you could put on it. Um, I think it goes to show how hard it is to make a lasting fundamental political change. I mean, there are these interests uh, that are so deeply rooted and that rest on, you know, ability to project power and military power and it's it's just so hard to work against that and you know at the risk of you know at the risk of sounding like a supporter of the so-called Wilsonian moment I mean there was at least a limited opportunity with the role of the U.S. in the war um, to have a chance at that which was lost when the U.S. essentially withdrew from that, uh, from the League of Nations and from the the Treaty of Versailles that created the League of Nations. As we saw in the episode before that. Right. Now, this doesn't mean that the U.S. was an El Dorado of perfect moral principles. It was an empire. It still had Jim Crow laws at home and so on um, to oppress the uh, the black population there. But there, I think, are some redeeming elements in some way to Wilson's hopes. Now, we're never going to know whether they would have made a significant difference because uh, obviously there, there wasn't really the chance to apply pressure to the old imperial powers once, uh, once the U.S. went its uh, sort of mostly separate way. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's right. And... Um... You know, I mean, you can say about, you know, Wilson, uh, whether he was, you know, a naive idealist or not, though at least, you know, there was some change on the table or at least like in a part of the negotiations. Um, I think another thing that we have seen time and time and again in 1919 and also now in 1920, and I think which we will continue to see in the Great War, is also I you know made a conscious decision to call the episode spoils of war 
um, because there was always this kind of mindset and we see that in the negotiations um, and in the relations between Britain and France, for example, as well, for example, also in regards to the home front is this idea that this war was so bloody, so brutal, had such a high cost, it basically, you know, almost bankrupted um, the British Empire. It put a huge strain uh, on the French economy, um, you know, let alone the human cost, the, the sacrifice that all these uh, countries made in the war. So in the end, even though there is some talk about, you know, we should put in place a framework to not repeat have that repeat itself the prevailing attitude is this must have meant something so we need to especially again towards the home front need to sell to the people that we're getting something we're getting spoils of war like look we have these new mandates look we have the control over the oil in the middle east now look we have you know we we get these this uh, and this much reparations from germany uh, now and everything so this will have meant something in the end it wasn't in vain and i think that's like the i mean there's a, a a thing called the sunken cost fallacy and i think that hits pretty hard here on a diplomatic scale yeah i think that's true once you ramp everything up um also propaganda wise you you know you paint yourself into a corner even if uh the decision is not in some ways, in the best interests long term, um, the short term pressure is, is too great to overcome without electoral repercussions. Yeah, and that's basically one of the, I think, one of the most severe effects of, you know, total mobilization, total, mobile, uh, total mobilization for total war. This was the first total war. And, you know, that means the if the stakes are that high, uh, and if you raise them that high, then the payoff also must be equally high. Even though it's, of course, quite debatable whether the populations were really all that happy about uh, mandates and extra resources in, in foreign corners of the globe, because there's a huge wave of strikes, because there's you know pretty bad unemployment when demobilization happens. And then you have... You know, you have these uh, achievements, let's say, in foreign policy, if you want to look at them that way, trying to paper over the daily sufferings of uh, people who were ended up going on strike. And, you know, in Scotland, they brought in tanks to break the strikes in 1919 and all sorts of crazy. They wanted to do that in Winnipeg in Canada as well. They asked the, the, the commander in chief of the Canadian army, asked the Dominion archivist, who was responsible for like keeping war trophies to show them off at the fledgling museum, whether the tank he had still worked because the general wanted to use it against the strikers. So there's kind of quite a, a contradiction between, uh, between these two sides of the coin there. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, as we hinted with the cliffhanger in the episode, uh, this topic will, and this region will continue to be, um, important this year and will continue to be part of the great war coverage later this year um, you know there is still a few peace treaties coming still a few more conferences coming and we will cover them of course and a bunch of actual fighting yes because that's what happens when people are not you know 
as we just said, that happens when people or other uh, entities that have a claim on a certain territory are not happy. And just like that, uh, the idea of the war to end all wars uh, goes up in flame. Whoops. Yeah. Um, we are also, you're also working on an episode about the Polish-Soviet war at the moment, um, which will be out by mid-May. Um, and I just hinted at more peace treaties. There is uh, the peace treaty of with uh, the Hungarian part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, Trianon. The very popular treaty of Trianon is coming up. I look forward to the comment section. Oh yeah, that will be great. And um, by request from a lot of fans, we are also working on something about the uh, Spanish flu again. Uh, we will see how that plays out. Uh, I recently read a bit about the um, more deadly second wave of the Sp uh, of the Spanish flu, um, and yeah, we will we will see what what how that episode uh, is going to shape out. Anyway. A few weeks ago, uh, seems like a lifetime now, um, I asked our Patreon supporters about that they should send in questions for expert interviews. Um, the last podcast episode I did was uh, where we, we interviewed an expert on the um, Irish War of Independence, which will also continue on the Great War this year. And I also asked about your questions about French artillery and French tanks because we worked with an expert here as well. Unfortunately, uh, she lives in France and is not able at the moment to do a live recording with us, but she sent us her answers for your questions via email and Jesse has them in front of them. I'm not gonna put on a French accent though. That's great. Yeah, we, we, thank, we thank you for that. <laughs> um, if you want to follow our expert, um, her name is Camille, and she is quite active on Twitter, actually. And if you want some great insights into her, uh, French tanks, a French arm war in World War I, uh, highly encourage you to follow her. I will put the link in the post where this episode is. Uh, uploaded on Patreon, the show notes, uh, show notes it's called, I think. So, without further ado, let's jump right into the questions. The first question comes from, we didn't copy the username, so I don't know, um, but the question is, um, the French 75mm is well known when it comes to the French artillery in World War I, but what did they develop in response to the challenges presented by trench warfare? not only technologically, but also from a doctrinal perspective. Yes, the famous 75. I think Forgotten Weapons even has a t-shirt of uh, the 75. It has a bit of a cult following. Um, Camille's answer runs like this. Yes, the main gun of the French army during the First World War is the 75, and the French have just over 3,000 of them in 1914. They also had a bit of a heavier piece, the 105mm howitzer, but they don't have trench artillery, like mortars and, and that sort of thing. 
they had anticipated uh, a different war, as many did, based on movement. Now, if that's your assumption, the French 75 is pretty much a perfect field gun. But that's not how things played out. So after 1915, with the changes of the war and the combat becoming obvious, the first uh, attempt by the French army to make up for this problem is to take some of the artillery pieces, heavier ones, that they had uh, in the forts where they still had you know, a fair amount of ammunition. And also to assign some older pieces of artillery. And the, um, the example she gives is the Mortier Célérier. I'm not familiar with that piece, but it was an older piece. And they assigned it for use in trench warfare. So they're kind of grabbing the assets that they have that they hadn't planned to use that way to make up for the lack of heavy artillery. They then also began to develop a trench mortar uh, known by its nickname, the Crapouillot, um, to support the infantry in the trenches. But they really get rolling in 1916 and 1917, where they really start working on heavier calibers, which they call the artillerie à grande puissance, which sounds pretty cool when you translate it word for word. It's uh, great power artillery. Um, so they have a 105 millimeter medium caliber to try to destroy bunkers, and they also adapt the 75 for more efficient anti-personnel use. They also introduce an administrative change, uh, like a structural change. So you might say that this bleeds into the, the doctrine as well. The French create a general reserve of artillery, which includes all sorts of different kinds of artillery. You have super heavy, heavy, you have railway artillery, you have light field guns, and you even have trench artillery. And this reserve was created by uh, General Buat, and it can be mobilized by the Supreme Headquarters to almost be like a, an emergency firepower reserve for the front. And they'll be sent to a specific point to really just rain down on the enemy in a critical sector in, with, uh, with artillery fire of all shapes and sizes so that um, whatever enemy activity in that sector uh, is happening can be stopped quickly. And that, uh, I think that, now this is me talking, not, not Camille at this stage, but I think that was a real innovation, this general reserve of artillery, and it served them well in 1918. Cool. Uh, I once read about the, uh, the French 75 that um, it was so revolutionary in its design and it um, hinted at how modern the French army could have been by 1913 or 1914 when the war broke out. Like there were, you know, there were several things that the French army experimented with before the war, including, by the way, khaki uniforms um, and a few other like rifles and everything, which would have been quite radical, a quite radical departure and... Um, from you know the previous systems but these um all died as um Otias, our weapons expert once uh, described about the libel they all died in committee and there was political resistance to them so um that i found quite interesting i mean i i do think the french don't get enough credit in some ways for innovation like the british get get the press for having the first kind of operational tank 
but it's actually the French uh, little Renault that becomes kind of the blueprint for tank development afterwards. But anyway. Yeah. Anyway, second question. This one comes from Clatten, who is also quite active in our Discord server. Um, remember that if you're a patron, you can join our Discord server. Um, you should be able to log in, like connect your Discord account with your Patreon account, and then it should automatically add the server. And there's always cool people hanging out there, including me and Jesse. So Clatten asks, did the French, like the British, um, wait. Were the French. Where the, we could, yeah. Were the French, like the British, confronted to a logistical problem regarding ammunition during the war? Likewise, did the French also need to deal with a lack of heavy artil artillery and high explosive shells? Or was the French army better prepared in this regard? So Camille writes, uh, basically, yes. Um, now, the French and British are not the only ones. The Russians also have a problem, and so do the Central Powers. Um, especially in 1915, there's a crisis uh, in terms of a shortage of ammunition, especially for the 75. And there are two primary reasons for this, because the war ends up lasting longer and longer and longer, and the stocks uh, get uh, expended. And then, of course, on the other hand, because industry was not set up at the beginning of the war to produce the amount of shells needed that the army uh, was was firing off. On the other hand, because the French didn't have enormous amounts of medium or heavy artillery, they had enough of a stock uh, to feed the guns that they did have. At the beginning of the war, 1914, the industry was producing about 10,000 shells a day. And by December, they'd increased that to 32,000 per day. But in 1915, uh, they launched a major offensive in the Champagne region. And this made it quite clear that the artillery shell production was not sufficient. And by then, the heavy artillery was beginning to lack ammunition as well. Um, but as we say, the, the Germans are starting to run into some of these problems uh, too. By the fall of 1918, French production had reached up to nearly 200,000 shells per day. And so they were able to kind of uh, make good that uh, issue by the end of the war, as uh, many of the belligerent powers were. In terms of the British, uh, yes, they, they have this problem as well, and it persists uh, longer the Barrage leading up to the Battle of the Somme, for example, was particularly pro problematic because a lot of the British munitions were of poor quality and ended up being so-called duds. Yeah, I think this is a common theme that we see with most armies that enter um, the war, like even with the smaller belligerents, is that, um, you know, once again, uh, if you up the stakes so much with total war and... Um, you know, are not, you know, you need to go all in with your industrial output uh, and so forth to be able to continue this kind of warfare even. And uh, yeah, the Italian, I, I know for that definitely the Italians and the Austro-Hungarians had the same problem, for example. And also both overcame that to a certain uh, extent. All right, um, question number three from Carlo Sanguinetti, 
Sorry for butchering that Italian. Italian is not a good language to speak in German. Um, as David T. Zabecki writes in Steelwind, chapter 2, paragraph inadequacy, um, and shows in uh, a few tables, I'm not going to quote them here, but uh, he, there's quite a few numbers and tables there apparently in this book. Um, in 1914, there was a serious problem of ammunition and, for the French, the poorest percentage of heavy guns in comparison with the British and the Germans. How could this happen? Also, uh, another question for the French artillery arm. I know that Canada's um, General Arthur Curry and other senior British and Commonwealth officers did staff learner visits to see how the French gunners were doing things. And the Canadians at least seem to have borrowed many tactics from them. Just how advanced was the French artillery arm compared to the British by late 1917, say, Passchendaele time frame, so late 1917. All right, so Camille writes that when the French developed the famous 75 before the Great War, remember, they were thinking of a much shorter war and a war that would be defined by movement and maneuver. So that's why they had uh, this particular doctrine. Now, the 75 is quite, as Flo mentioned, uh, quite an advanced piece of technology. It had an oleonomatic system, it had a fast charge, it had accurate fire. And so uh, this all plays into the French doctrine uh, prioritize, prioritizing movement and speed. The 75 is perfect for this because of how technologically advanced it is. It can fire extremely quickly and can be loaded extremely quickly as well. The heavy artillery, on the other hand, uh, was more for use against forts, support points, uh, strong points, that sort of thing. Um, they don't have as much heavy artillery because they don't think they're going to need it, is essentially the baseline. That's Jesse's little summary of, of Camille's explanation, but now back to Camille's answer. Uh, but of course, as mentioned, in 1915, the French army has a problem with stocks of ammunition, um, also with not enough heavy artillery, and also with a lack of trench artillery, aka mortars, primarily. By 1917, the French are able to make up the gap between the French and Germans. Now, during the war, because they got a lot of experience in the early months that the British uh, didn't have and the Americans certainly didn't have, they organized quite a few training camps for their allies uh, to help them with artillery and then later to help the Americans with tank use as well. The goal was to share their experiences during the first year of the war um, about mobility, about indirect fire, about infantry support, about how to prepare an artillery barrage, how to carry out an artillery barrage. By 1917, uh, Camille says she feels the real difference between the French and British army is that concept of the general reserve of artillery that we talked about in the first answer. And it's used in 1917 in some of the French uh, more limited offensive, like at Malmaison, that happened after the mutinies. And then in a much... Uh, more extensive way to support the Allied offensives of 1918. Um, and the difference between the British and French in terms of artillery by this later stage of the war is more in terms of doctrine than tactics. Uh, 
So thanks to this reserve, when the Allies eventually merge their supreme command in 1918, they can move uh, they can move that firepower around to gain local firepower superiority over the Germans. Malmaison is a very interesting battle. Um, it's a bit of a a connoisseur's battle, I would say, for World War One. Uh, I, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, check it out. Uh, I think we made an episode about it uh, when it took place. Didn't get that many clicks because I don't think many people, you know, particularly knew what it was. But it's a quite. It's one of these um, small yet important steps forward uh, in the transition from trench warfare to uh, eventually, you know, uh, mobile warfare again, and to the recovery of the French army. Yes. That's true. Anyway, um, the next and final question comes from Aryan Aurora. Um, were there any large tank-on-tank -tank battles between the Renault FT and the German A7V? If so, what was the outcome? Which tank is considered superior over the other? All right, so what Camille does in this answer is she kind of uh, makes a little tournament bracket, so to speak, comparing which design she feels is superior between pairs of um, different French tanks compared to the German tank, the A7V. So the answer, her answer starts like this. Uh, the first clash between tanks was at Villers-Bretonneux near Amiens in April of 1918. Sorry, Jesse, uh, as the Australians pronounce it, Villers-Bretonneux. Right. Um... Well, I'll let all our lovely patrons choose which of those pronunciations they'll go with. Um, yeah, that, that's a, a whole science in itself. The Wipers Times and uh, all sorts of other things. Plug Street and so on. Okay. Anyway. Yes, anyway. Uh, back to Camille's answer. Now, this first tank-on-tank uh, -tank action, so to speak, is an, a German A7V facing a number of British tanks. Uh, a male tank, April 1918, I'm gonna guess it's a Mark IV, kind of, I would imagine so, uh, but then also two female tanks and uh, some whippets, the smaller machine gun carrying light tanks. The A7V never faced a Renault tank, so the French light tank, in 1918 in Picardy there were lots of French tanks engaged but they never ended up going up against German tanks. However, here comes our comparisons. So let's first take the German A7V versus a French Schneider tank. Schneider sounds very German, but it's a, it's a French armaments company. Um, Camille judges that the A7V has a superior design. The Schneider is faster, but it is lacking a frontal cannon. So it doesn't have that main weapon at the front, which would give it that advantage, gives the A7V the advantage in this case. If you compare the German A7V versus the French Saint-Chamond, she feels that the Saint-Chamond is a superior design because it has more power, it has a frontal cannon, it is more mobile, and it has a lower profile. It's not as tall, and that's an advantage. And finally, If you compare the A7V to the Renault FT, the famous uh, smaller French tank design, she feels that the FT comes out the winner here. It's the superior vehicle, 
it's a much more advanced design. It's faster. Now, it's more lightly armored, but it's a lot more flexible. If an A7V is so is not able to, to get a hit on the uh, Renault FT, which would be quite difficult because it's small and it's quick and agile. For World War I standards? For, for World War I standards, yeah. We're, we're, we're not talking about... Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're talking World War I standards here. Um, if the German A7V is not able to hit the, the Renault because of these advantages in speed and agility, then the French tank has as good a chance of any of disabling the A7V. So voila, there are your comparisons. And uh, yeah, thanks, Camille. I, I would say with the A7V versus uh, Saint-Germain, I think it would be uh, very dependent on the terrain and the... Um, And the, and the combat scenario, like, as far as I remember, the Saint-Germain was used like a, like an assault gun or like mobile artillery uh, later in the war. And it wasn't particularly good at maneuvering certain terrains, but it could be, you know, could easily be used as a very mobile and agile artillery. So I think from a distance, it would definitely have an advantage over an a7v though i would think that if the a7v would be able to um you know surprise attack though that's you know very hard to imagine scenario because these tanks were not very sneaky certainly uh, i think the a7v in a closer distance might have um, an advantage we'll never know we will never know that is true unless we raise enough money to <laughs> build our own replicas and play this out for example in the arena of the tech museum i think we have our next crowdfunding campaign i was just going to say the cat is out of the bag it's world war one tank gladiator action at the tank museum arena cool all right um keep your eyes peeled for the announcement for the crowdfunding campaign <laughs> i think we just need a few million euros to burn for this um yeah so uh, thanks again, Camille, for uh, taking the time to uh, writing these answers. Um, I hope in the future we can record a proper episode with her because she has much more to say about uh, French artillery particularly. And we will hear you next time, probably still from the special COVID-19 shutdown studio. Probably. I wanted to take one, one uh, moment before we sign off to plug uh, the fact that I finally gave in and I am also now on Twitter. So if any of you want to subject yourselves to the Twitter universe um, or if you want to follow me posting stuff, then it's uh, you can follow me at jesse underscore history and voila. Yeah, I will also post that link in the description uh the twitter story and community has welcomed jesse with open arms i think and i think you will also enjoy what he has to say of course um yeah so without further ado um that was our april episode for the podcast in the very last days of april um i hope we can record the next episode a bit sooner provided that this recording setup that we have here works out as we imagined so um yeah stay safe out there um 
you know, we, as Jesse said, we live in historic times. So, um, yeah. See you next time. See you in the next episode.